It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Time's up for the Australian cricket team. Beaten home by England with a test match to spare. The Ashes lost again. As the inquest begins, an astonishing event occurs further east in Melbourne. Five kilometres along the tram tracks at Kuyong Lawn Tennis Club, the contrast with a downcast MCG couldn't be greater. Australia's men's tennis players are about to win the Davis Cup. It's remarkable on many levels. The Aussie hero will be 21-year-old Pat Cash, who at school was a cricketer, inspired by the greats of the 1970s. And the three days of the final against Sweden take place on the only three days of the Boxing Day Test match. Both events in the same city, one watching the other. The tennis team, heroes and honourable Australians. The cricket team, failures and flops worthy of a prime ministerial put-down. Bob Hawke was a cricket nut, and he came out after Australia had lost in three days, smashed in three days by an innings by England, whilst down the road, Pat Cash and co are holding up the Davis Cup. And the quote goes something like, I wish Alan Border had 11 Pat Cashes at his disposal, or something like that, which AB wasn't very happy about at all. That's journalist Adam Collins. This is AB, Alan Border. His team had been thrashed by an innings. Ugly stuff. I think the game lasted, what, about two and a half days. I can remember us sitting around the dressing room, you know, kicking cans and not feeling too happy about ourselves, our performance, quite rightly so. But of course, things start to loosen up as you have a few beers and um, the, the two teams eventually get together after England have been celebrating next door so we could hear it loud and clear. But we were watching the uh, tennis, the Davis Cup tennis was on. You know, the most famous tradition is, is the MCG Boxing Day uh, test. So, yeah, it was going to be on at the same time. Everything, all the focus was honed in on the cricket and the Davis Cup final. Pat Cash was playing for Australia against, uh, I think it was Michael Pernforce from Sweden. So, you know, classic Davis Cup, the number one singles guys, you know, going at it. And, um, yeah, it gives us some solace as, um, you know, watching Cashy. Uh, yeah, Pat Cash, uh, 1986, the summer of 1986, we were playing Sweden in the Davis Cup final. I think Cashy goes two sets down. There's a lot of, oh, yeah, bad day at the office for the Aussie boys, uh, you know, that, that sort of uh, talk. And as it turns out, Cashy wins in a thriller, you know, a five-set thriller, and we're sort of taking something out of the day that, uh, you know, he's come back and won this Davis Cup for Australia. Neil Fraser, a very experienced Davis Cup captain and obviously former Grand Slam champion, would often talk about Bob Hawke, who was their Prime Minister, of course, then. 
they were very good mates from back, you know, many years ago, 30 years. And Bob Hawker was a mad cricket man. And uh, so there was, it was quite often the phone calls would come in. That was before mobile phones, but in the, the dressing room or in the hotel room or whatever, there'd be a phrase would just say, oh, that was Bob Hawke. And go, really? The Prime Minister? Yeah, 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 yeah. He just wants to know what's going on. So <laughs> in between his uh, parliamentary duties, he'd be calling phrase for an update on the sporting, which would be um, racing would be priority. Cricket followed by tennis. And uh, Hawkey is at uh, Keyong to present the Davis Cup to the, the Aussie team. And uh, in his speech, his words to the effect was, um, it's a pity there wasn't 11 Pat Cashes at the MCG today. Oh, so you can imagine there's lots of different uh, articles thrown at the TV and uh, lots of rumblings and carry on. But um, the bottom line was he's right. That, that performance against England, that particular game was just as low as it gets. Australia was in shock. So many live by the baggy green cap, the pride of the national cricket team. It was a time for reflection. Ah, oh, well, the reaction when you lose the ashes. <laughs> oh, Jeff Lawson here, Australian test cricketer. A poll comes over the country. Australia had now gone 14 test matches without a victory. It was an all-time historical low on that measure. You know, how do we lose that and whose fault was it? To be 2-0 down with one to go, to lose inside three days at Melbourne. To lose in Melbourne, Boxing Day test is... It's a fairly disagreeable thing for Australians and Australian cricketers. You could say that Australian cricket was at truly its lowest ebb of the decade on that day at Melbourne. The day was the 28th of December, the MCG would be empty and embarrassed for the rest of the scheduled test match. Alan Border, ashamed, but determined. There was a group of us uh, in the manager's room, sort of up at the Hilton where we stayed in Melbourne uh, that night. There was about half a dozen guys. Yeah, there was me, Jonesy, Booney, uh, Steve Waugh, might have been Jeff Marsh. You know, a few, a few of the sort of core group of guys that uh, we had. And we sort of like, it was one of those line of the sand moments, you know, we're not going to play like that anymore. That's it. The group are tired, broken, beaten. It's before midnight, but it feels so much later. Beer in hand, the inquest begins. I suppose good in a way that uh, we weren't too sure where the bottom was because we'd had a couple of years of not playing well and uh, who knows where you, you finally bottom out. And I, As history's shown, I think it's that particular day uh, at the MCG. You know, to see us sort of dropping behind was a national disaster. I mean, it can only be called a national, it really was a national disaster, sporting disaster. And you got to remember that we didn't have many sporting champions yet. And we didn't have many sporting TV networks and channels to watch sports. So there was, there was cricket, there was Aussie rules during the year. Greg Norman was a, was a star. Uh, tennis was always big. So there was very few things to hang your hat on. And certainly cricket at that stage was, was pretty disappointing. I was always a cricket player. I was fascinated by cricket. Uh, I used to play a lot at, at school level. I did a bit of both, yeah. Bat a bit, bowl a bit. Yeah, I was the school uh, cricket captain. You know, I was, I was only uh, under 12s and whatever it was, uh, under 13s. But if you were the first one to get to school, you could get the cricket nets. So you could get the cricket bat and the, and the ball out and the pads out and you could spend an hour in the cricket nets before school started. So I think that's why I got the, the captaincy because I was always the first one to get there. And yeah, it was, uh, it, was a good, it was a good bit of fun. So I really enjoyed my cricket. 
Well, I mean, for me, growing up, Thompson and Lily were our absolute heroes. Um, you know, there's nothing better than watching Dennis Lilly tear in, Jeff Thompson bowling at a million miles an hour. You know, it was always very exciting. My dad would be roaring out. The cricket, the test, the cricket testing was, was, was always on, on the TV. And you hear my dad roaring, he'd race in to see if it was a wicket or whatever. And I was quite often, he said, Check, look, look at this. There's, Thompson did a bouncer and it bounced 10 yards over the top of Marsh's head and went, went for over for four buys. And my goodness. You know, I had a connection with, with Alan Border, actually. I remember cl- very clearly having a, a dinner with two tennis players, me and my doubles partner, John Fitzgerald, and there was uh, Alan Border and uh, Ian Chappell. Yeah, there's quite a bit of ribbing going on between what was the best sport and what was the, what the talent requirements were for, for tennis uh, versus cricket and, and vice versa. There's tennis and, and cricket. You know, it's amazing how often we sort of um, gathered together because the Australian Open was traditionally played at the same time as the uh, Melbourne Test match. So, you know, you'd be, you'd be at the Hilton at night and you'd see all the, the tennis players. Uh, uh, in those days, they were allowed to have a few beers, as were we. So you, you sort of had a good uh, fraternity uh, between the, the cricketers and the, the tennis players. So it sort of started way, way back. And in those days, it was uh, great fun over that Christmas New Year period. There's no fun in the cricket camp this Christmas. Australia are at rock bottom. It was yeah, the usual doom and gloom story. Obviously, we'd lost to New Zealand the year before. Now we've, now we've lost to England at home. I mean, this is the worst side that's ever played. Mind you, they called us that in 89 when we got there as well. But to play is you always try to justify how you've played. And, and certainly we would look at the, the loss of all those players to the Rebel Tour. You know, if you take that many quality players away... Other players then had to learn their job. We had some good players, but they just weren't ex- very experienced. You know, there are reasons why you, you lose test matches. So players tend to look at, you know, try to be a bit forensic about why you lose because you want to get better, whereas the press will, will tend to be quite emotional about it and blame personalities and people and look for fault. Whereas as a player, you've, you've got to then front up to the next test, the next series. Which was already on the mind of the skipper. Alan Border was not planning to walk away. I was trying to find percentage points, right? So I sort of looked at my captaincy and, and what I did and didn't do as a, as a captain and as a leader as well, you know, on and off the field, away from the field. I mean, we were on the receiving end for the previous couple of years, for, you know, against basically all comers, not just England. Um, yeah, tiny little percentage points uh, of change from my own captaincy and how I went about it. One, he was still our best batsman, but two, there were just no other candidates for captaincy because a lot of those candidates had gone to the Rebel Tour and weren't available to play for Australia. So, I mean, when you look at how AB got the captaincy in 84 and Kim Hughes stepped down, AB wasn't in the succession planning to be captain of Australia. He was there to be one of the best players, but he just wasn't considered to be the captain. It's not a thought that anybody had that we would need another captain of Australia. I don't think he would have been too fussed if he had lost the job because it meant he would have concentrated on his batting even more and been even better. But the captaincy and, and Alan Border's grit and determination went together. So I don't think he was ever really in danger of losing the job. It was just, you know, get a bit grumpier and, you know, try a bit harder. Down the tram tracks at Kuyong, Pat Cash was fighting hard to rescue Australian pride, harder than expected. 
they leave the field and they're still a set to go at Kuyong. So all the Australian players are trying to catch up on what's going on and seeing uh, whether Pat Cash can, can finish the job in five sets after dropping the first two. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually I heard. I remember vaguely remember somebody saying that. That was the uh, yeah, the match was all gone, and I, at that stage, the summer of sport had, had really been a complete disappointment. Until and it would have been a, a massive disappointment had of Cash not beaten this unknown guy called Pernfors in the Davis Cup final at home at Kuyong. Things were looking pretty bleak for Australian sport, I suppose. Somewhere about two sets to love and uh, break points down. As it was reported at the time, a number of the England family, wives and girlfriends who are out there, they were so certain that it would go into a fourth day at the MCG, they went to Kuyong instead. They wanted to be at the tennis to see what would happen on the final day of the Davis Cup. No way. I had no idea about that. Well, there you go. I mean, that's cricket, isn't it? Cricket's one of those bizarre sports. So when you get on a roll and everything can go for or against you. Oh, that, that's bizarre. No, I didn't know that. As, as athletes, as, as players, we know that sport comes comes and goes. You have your ups and downs and you have your bad moments and your good moments. And, and you know, tennis was having a good moment and the cricket was, was having a bad moment. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the start of the rebuild, and Alan Border has underlined how important that is. It's one of those line-in-the-sand moments, you know. We're not going to play like that anymore. That's it. That's it. They then go to the World Cup, and Alan Border gets Mike Gatting out reverse sweeping when it looks like England are going to win. I remind uh, Michael Gatting of that um, every time I see him. He sort of tries to avoid me now. He almost tries to cross the street. He's never going to escape that one. Going to escape that one. The MCG is clearly the nadir of where the Australian team were. Nine months later, they win the World Cup. They then go to England for the 89 Ashes. And it's the press saying that the Australian team is the worst team that's ever travelled. And they're a load of rubbish. But they win the first test at Headingley and suddenly the Australians are off and running. Suddenly Alan Border is a confident captain. His fast bowlers are backing him up. And then suddenly you see this generation coming through. McGrath, Warne, Steve Waugh, who becomes captain. Mark Taylor becomes captain. Ponting, Langer, Hayden. All these massive behemoths of Australian cricket. So we go from the absolute lowest of the low from the MCG, nine months later winning the World Cup, 89 that win the Ashes, and suddenly it's Australia who, when it comes to the England Ashes rivalry, are absolutely dominant for the best part of two decades. I don't suppose it's ever going to be possible to quantify uh, how important 86-87 was to what came next with the World Cup and and the win in 89 and, and the period of sustained success. I'm Adam Collins, cricket writer and broadcaster. 
Certainly from Alan Border's perspective, he's always talked about those dark times in the mid-80s when he didn't have a full complement of players to select from, when he was dealt a hand as captain that was far from what it could have otherwise been, that did mean that he never let an opportunity go. It was so influential in determining the way he would lead that Australian team and never accept second prize and be so ruthless and so unforgiving. Yeah, well, but certainly if you want to put a marker down as how the series turned around. I mean, yeah, that's it, 86-87. Jeff Lawson here. You know, and AB was the captain, oh, when did he finish up? 94? So he was captain for a lot more years after that particular series, in which Australia were very successful. Jeff Lawson, Craig McDermott, Merv Hughes, Bruce Reed are all important in future series wins against England. In Reed's case, only 1990-91, but he did take 12 wickets at the MCG, that same venue, the next time England were there in, in 1990. Then all overseen by Alan Border. Alan Border. I've got to give a lot of credit to Bob Simpson, who was our you know, new coach at the time, one of those you know old school professional cricketers, you know, just uh, didn't take any nonsense, uh, you know, the sergeant major type. So there was a lot, lot of discipline that really came into the side that had sort of gone a, a little bit. And he was, you know, very good in that, that area, you know, so it allowed me to, you know, do my thing and just be my, you know, the best I could be as, as the captain leader. But you know, all, all those, you know, the, the practice sessions and, the, and the, the relentless drive that he had for fielding perfection and just doing all the little things well, it just really helped. It sounds strange, you know, at that level, you know, when you're playing for Australia, you should, those things would come naturally to you. But sometimes, you know, you just lose sight of the core little things. And we actually introduced some tactics, you know, where we'd like to be after 15 overs, you know, when we're bat first, blah, blah, blah. So we, we sort of had some structure to our game plan, which uh, we'd never had before. If you really go to analyse that 86-87 series, it, it, the result was 2-1. At the end of that losing Ashes summer, Australia won the World Cup. So that, that, that's a pretty big thing. And Australia won a pretty tense final against the side that had beaten them in the Ashes. Oh, it was just huge because we, we just weren't, we weren't favoured at all. The home teams were the favoured sides, Pakistan, India. And then, of course, you had the West Indies and England in particular. They were, you know, a good side at the time. We were still very much coming out of a two, three-year hiatus of um, you know, not performing, you know, chopping and changing our team around and, and just trying to work out this uh, core group. The Australian players, Boone, Dean Jones and Steve Waugh, they just got more and more experienced. And that was with you know, Craig McDermott, Simon O'Donnell, uh, Greg Dyer was the keeper who played one test in 86-87. Um, so they all got better because of that loss at home. And that's what you've got to do. That's all you can do. You try to get better. I think AB became a better captain and a better leader in a, in a bit of adversity, and the and the younger players started to perform. So, wouldn't underestimate that victory. Okay, when the World Cup's a great thing, but to beat England in that final after being beaten in the Ashes was quite significant. World Cup one attention turned to reclaiming the Ashes. When Australia toured England in 1989, they weren't given much of a chance. But this time, they were ready. Australia were able to turn the corner in 87 when it came to their contest against England. Uh, they wouldn't lose another Ashes series for 18 years through until 2005. And once they get to 1989... I suppose I was surprised by the final scoreline. Border's side win the series 4-0. England were a very good side. Uh, we weren't fancied. It was one of those, um, you know, you, you turn up to the... 
uh, worst Ashes side ever type headlines. So, because um, we, we had a very young group together and, and uh, England weren't particularly worried about, you know, Steve Waugh or, or David Boone or, you know, Jeff or a couple of those guys. But um, Terry Alderman um, probably should have brought back some memories. You know, I knew he was in the ranks and bowling well. And uh, if there was ever a guy that's born to bowl in England, you know, it's Terry Alderman. So, yeah, he was there. Jeff Lawson, you know, very cerebral, you know, fast bowling groups, particularly those two that, you know, you could bounce things off and, you know, they, they were great to work with. I mean, it wasn't all just me, you know, these guys, you know, had some sort of game plans, how they're going to bowl at Gower, how they're going to bowl at uh, Gooch, etc. had certain fields that we thought might work. Um, but, you know, you've still got to deliver, haven't you? And deliver they most certainly did. Border mentions Steve Waugh. The future Aussie skipper was 24 during that series, but back in 86, he was a rookie at 21, an all-rounder in those days, and remarkably playing as the third seamer in the Adelaide Test. When Steve Waugh was captain of Australia, he used to often talk about his initiation to test cricket and how embarrassing it was losing at the MCG in three days and being part of that team and realising that you could never give an opportunity for a team to get on top of you the way that England did Australia in the summer of 86, 87. Yeah, look, I think with Stephen, he always had early signs. He had early signs when he started his career you know, in 80, 84 for New South Wales. It, it seemed to be a bit of a anomaly that he hadn't got a test 100 because... You know, he'd been made fifties. He made made a number of seventies actually, and then would find a way just to just to nick a straight ball or, or get out. He was also had the burden, and I say burden of his bowling because we only we only picked two seamers for well when we get to the third test, we only picked two seamers, and Stephen had to do all the other bowling. So he was playing as the genuine all rounder, not not the player he became after '89 when he was just a batsman who bowled very rarely. Uh, he was the genuine all-rounder who was asked to do a fair bit of hack work with the ball. And that can detract from your batting, particularly playing very long innings. You know, if you've had a day in the field, you've had to bowl 10, 12, 15 overs, and then you've got to go and find a place to bat. That It does take a bit out of you physically and psychologically. Australia were growing into the all-conquering team they would become. Under Wars' leadership between 1997 and 2004, they won the World Cup again and dominated the other Test nations. Preceded by Mark Taylor and succeeded by Ricky Ponting, War was there during the highs, but also the lowest of lows. It truly was a remarkable period in Australian cricket history, as remarkable as multiple mentions on a cricket podcast for the Swedish tennis player Mikkel Pernforsch but he almost compounded Australia's misery on that famous festive weekend in 1986. Everything was going according to plan. We'd beaten Edberg. Fortunately, Pat Cash was on hand. OK, uh, McNamee lost, but uh, Fitzgerald and I came out there and we played a great doubles match. So 2-1 up. Uh, I don't need to do anything crazy to beat this Pernforce guy. He's a, he's a clay quarter after all, isn't he? So I'll just go out there and play half-decent tennis. Uh, half-decent tennis was not nearly good enough and Pernfors absolutely destroyed me for two sets. Uh, I've got to say, I've never had anybody play like that against me. I just couldn't believe it. I've never seen anybody play like this in my life. Like in the Davis Cup Finals, a five-set match, as we know. I was ba- barely hanging in on my serve uh, in, in the third set, you know, got the sort of two-all and got the three-all, you know, just. Phrase came up to me and... Uh, the change of ends, he goes, you know what? Um, Poonfors are slowing down. 
He, he often says it's the biggest white lie he's ever told in his life. And I was like, really? You think so? He goes, yeah, absolutely. You didn't get to that shot. He got to that shot in the first two sets. And I said, you know, and we're like, um, yeah, I think you're right. He didn't get you. He got to that in the first two sets, didn't he? And he said, yeah, yeah, you've got him. If you just hang in there, he's going to run out of gas. He's going to run out of gas. And I, I did. I just hung in there to somehow get the third set. And again, same thing happened. Just hung in there, hung in there, got the fourth set and and ran away and started playing great tennis in the fifth set and, and won. It's a pity there wasn't 11 Pat Cashes at the MCG today. Yeah, I heard that and I thought, oh, that must sting a little bit. I felt sorry for the guys in the cricket, I've got to be honest. That's really tough. That's really tough on the cricketers. It's, it's amazing how much it highlights how important the cricket is. <laughs> it was great that we beat Sweden, but what, what would happen to the cricket? We needed a Pat Cashers out there, you know? So let's get back to the cricket. <laughs> That's how big the cricket was. The good news for Australia is that things do pick up in the final test of the 86-87 series. And it's all thanks to a man we need to find. I actually haven't heard him talk about it. Right, we'll find him. Don't worry. Oh, a very, very close friend of mine. Yeah. I mean, you know him a bit. Where, where is, where is Peter Taylor these days? He's a champion bloke, PT. He's the one who asked for a loan, by the way. <laughs> do you have any idea? Where do we start looking? So he's up. Is he still up by New South Wales in a, in a yeah. farm in, in the border? Yeah. Hello. Inside the Tour, The Ashes is presented by Mark Pugach, original music and sound design by Lee Sperry, additional music Dan Compton, produced by Jonathan Overend at 9419 for Audi.